are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, and what a privilege to get to be in my home church, not only to worship with you, but to preach. I don't often get that opportunity anymore, so uh, I'm glad for the invitation. I'm sad for the occasion. Because, as you know, Pastor Rick had an accident and uh, is healing and doing well. But he's doing very well, actually, and and the Lord is really helping him. And I think you're going to see him maybe sooner than you thought that you might see him. But because he's not here, I decided I would do what Pastor Rick would do on the Sunday following Thanksgiving. I'm going to do this with the picture he sent me on Thanksgiving morning. Here it is. It's uh, Happy Thanksgiving from Sadie and Ricky. He would do that if he were here, right? So let's say hi to Rick. He's probably listening right now. Hey, Pastor Rick. We, uh, we're thankful for a lot of things uh, on Thanksgiving Sunday, but one of the things for my family that is at the top of our list is that God has brought Rick and Annette Harvey to Pastor Bethany First Church. We, we love them, and they're leading with, uh, with vision, and God is using them. So keep praying for him. This is also uh, an important Sunday because this isn't just Thanksgiving Sunday. And Thanksgiving is the American calendar, and we all love Thanksgiving. But this is also in the Christian calendar. This is Christ the King Sunday. So this is the end of ordinary time, this is the end of Pentecost, and right before the beginning of Advent, which starts next Sunday morning, but Christ the King is the Sunday where we, where we say out loud that our primary allegiance is not to our nationality, it's not to our families, it's not to our ethnicities, but Jesus is our primary allegiance. He is not only the Prince of Peace who came, He is the King who is coming, He's the king of the world, and we worship him as our first allegiance. Amen? That's who we are when we say that we are Christian. So Jesus is king. John, the gospel writer, said that if all the stories about Jesus were written down in a book, there would not be enough libraries in the world to hold all of those stories. Now, that's probably a little bit of what we call pastoral, pastorally speaking. That, maybe that isn't fully true, but his point is well made. And here's the point, that there was lots and lots and lots of stories about Jesus and what he did and who he is that did not make the Bible. And we have four biographies of Jesus. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are what we call the Gospels. But when you read those four uh, Gospels, there's, there's lots of stories that didn't get told. So the, then it leads me to the next question is, if there's lots of stories that didn't even make the Bible, then why are there some stories that are repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And if there are some stories that rep- are repeated, there's only two stories that I can remember besides the passion of Jesus, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. Those are told in all four Gospels. But, but there's only two stories that are told in all four. And the question is, why did the early church believe 
that these two stories have to be told over and over and over again, even to the point that we're going to tell them again right here in November of 2018 at Bethany First Church. That story is found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. I could have read from Matthew or Luke or John, but we're going to read it from Mark. It's in Mark chapter 6, and it begins with verse 30. And you're, you're going to know the story, but I want you to, in your imagination, pretend that you're hearing this for the first time. And you're trying to figure out, what, what is this trying to say to us? All right? Normally, I would ask you to stand as a way to honor God's word, but it's a little longer story, so I want you to kind of sit and either read it on the screen or read it with, uh, in your Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. The apostles, that's the disciples, gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, that's kind of a funny thing to say, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, well, five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate, and they were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we all say together, thanks be to God. Amen. I need to set the context of this story. You always have to ask, what came before this story and why this is so important? So the disciples have just been on their first kind of missionary journey by themselves. In other words, they were going out two by two, but they were going without the physical presence of Jesus. And they were preaching and teaching and healing in Jesus' name. And and they saw miracles happen. They saw people who had been demon-possessed. They were set free. They saw people who were blind be able to see. They saw people who were lame be able to walk. And, And they came back and they were so excited. They couldn't wait to tell their stories. And as Jesus was listening to them talk, he could see that they were exhilarated and they were exhausted. How many of you know that ministry is exhilarating and exhausting? And so rather than kind of, 
you know, get after them because they were tired, Jesus said, it's time for us to do a retreat. I know a place. It's a, it's a solitary place. It's remote. There's nobody else around. We're going to get together. We're going to have great food. We're going to tell stories. We're going to hang out together. We're going to rest and just be renewed. We're going to go on a retreat. And the disciples said, that's perfect. And so they set off for this remote, solitary place where there were no people. But guess what happened? One of the disciples got on Facebook. And he told everybody where they were going. And by the time they get to this solitary, remote place where there weren't supposed to be any people, there were so many people that Mark says there were 5,000 men, and that didn't even count the women and the children, which meant that at the very least there was probably, let's say, 10,000 people. This is a massive multitude. And, and the disciples see all these people and they say, oh, no. And Jesus looks at them and he has compassion on them. And he didn't have compassion on them like he felt sorry for them, but, but he had the compassion that comes right out of your guts that says, I identify with these people. They are like sheep that don't have a shepherd. They're confused, they're lost, they're disoriented. And so Jesus, even though he was tired, he began to teach them the word of God. And, and he teaches them all day long. And now it's the very end of the day and, and the sun is kind of beginning to set and the disciples are looking around and they're realizing we, don't, we, we can't feed all these people. And we've got to send them away. We've got to send them to go buy some food or a place where they can sleep. But we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no swaddlies nearby. And, and so they said, somebody's got to go tell Jesus, send them away. Now, when I first read those words, send them away, just send them away, it felt like... It, it was a lack of compassion. It, it kind of felt like, just get rid of these people so we can do what we want to do. But the more I read the story, the more I began to think, this wasn't a lack of compassion. This was, a, this was an act of compassion. Because they could see this tremendous need. They could see thousands of people who were hungry and who were tired, and they realized, we don't have the resources to meet the needs of all of these people. And so in an act of compassion, they said, send them away because they have needs that we can't meet. And when they told Jesus, send them away, Jesus does what he always does, which Chris mentioned earlier. He, he always asks a question. You notice that every time you come to Jesus and you say something, he'll ask a question back to us. And here was the... Here, here's, well, first of all, he said a statement. He said... You give them something to eat. And the disciples, I'm sure, were looking at Jesus, and you kind of see a little bit of a reference in, in the Scripture, but it was like they were saying, uh, Jesus, maybe you don't understand the situation here. In case you hadn't noticed, there's about 10,000 people out here. There's 12 of us, and we don't have the money to pay for this. And by the way, in case you hadn't noticed, we all left our real jobs to follow you. And probably Judas said, and you know, Jesus, it wouldn't be good stewardship for us to blow everything we have on one meal just to feed some hungry people. So they, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. The disciples said, we don't have the resource. But here's where Jesus asked the question. Jesus says back to them, what do you have? Say that with me, would you? What do you have? Go and see. We'll come back to what you have in just a second. And so the disciples, they go out and they just start 
they, they start asking people, did you guys bring anything with you? Did you bring something? Did you, what'd you bring? What'd you bring? What'd you bring? They start throwing stuff. And, and they come back and they, and they pull all their resources together and they came up with five loaves, five hush puppies, and two fish. And I can almost see the disciples, they're gathered around like, and they're saying, are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell him? And Jesus said, what'd you find out? And they said, uh, five hush puppies and two fish. Now I looked it up in the Greek language. That's what the New Testament was written in. And I looked up five loaves and two fish in the Greek. And you know what it literally means? Not much. And they handed it to Jesus and they were, they were like embarrassed. And then Jesus said, it's perfect. Now give it to me. And then Jesus says something really interesting. He says, have the people set down on the green grass. Now the reason that's an interesting statement to me is because when you read through the Gospel of Mark, usually the language is is really sparse. I mean, he doesn't give a lot of detail. You have to kind of fill in the blank in your imagination. So why did he say green grass? Why didn't he say, for example, just have them set down? Or have them set down on the ground? Or have them just sit on the grass? Why does he use the word green grass? And then I realized Jesus never says anything that he doesn't say on purpose. And so maybe he was speaking symbolically. Maybe he was using a theme. And so I started to study. And you know what I found out from Genesis all the way to Revelation through the whole Bible? The theme of green grass appears over and over again. And every time it appears, it has a specific meaning. When it talks about in Genesis that God gave all of the green grass of the field for the animals to eat, it was a sign that he was creating a kingdom. When it says in Psalm 23, I will lay you down on what? Green grass or in green pastures. What was that all about? When he talks about it in the prophets, when he talks about it in the gospels, in the epistles, and then all the way into the book of Revelation, you'll see green grass mentioned. And every time it happens, every time, it, it means God is doing something in this moment that we cannot do for ourselves. It's a symbol of the inbreaking kingdom of God. God is in this place. Have the people sit down on the green grass. Say, say green grass. And then Jesus says, Give it to me. Give me the bread and the fish. In the hands of Jesus, all things become possible. And then there's four verbs. It says Jesus took the bread. Jesus blessed the bread. Jesus broke the bread. And then Jesus gave the bread. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's because that's exactly what happens every time we receive communion here at BFC. Every time Pastor Rick, he takes bread, he blesses bread, he breaks bread, and then he gives bread. That's a Eucharistic action. That's, that's called God doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And, and so it, it reminds me of a story that happened when I was serving communion on a Good Friday. It was a... It was a tenebrae service and we were going to all receive communion together and I asked one of the worship leaders 
I want you to go out and get one of those round loaves of bread, you know, like one that maybe Jesus would have used, and, and I'm going to do like I think Jesus would have done. I'm going to take the bread, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless the bread, I'm going to break it, and everybody's going to say, oh, this is a great spiritual moment. And so he did. He brought the bread and he set it down, and we were right in the middle of that service, and I should have checked ahead of time, but I didn't, and the first time I touched the bread was in the middle of the service, and as soon as I touched it, I thought, oh man, I'm in big trouble. Because he bought, he didn't buy normal bread. He, he bought that bread that has the really hard, crusty, like French bread on the outside, you know, like you could actually break your toe if you dropped that bread. And I touched it and I went, oh no, I'm in trouble. So I went, and Jesus took the bread, and Jesus blessed the bread, and Jesus broke the bread, <laughs> and Jesus broke the bread. Lane, you remember this? And Jesus broke the bread. And now, I'm not kidding, I've got it like down here. Jesus broke the bread. And all of a sudden it just shatters in my hand and bread flies over everybody in the front row. And it was such a non-spiritual moment, but it has nothing to do with this story. It's just a great story to tell. So Jesus, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it. And then he gives it back into the hands of the disciples to complete the miracle. Now here's the thing to think about. It might be 99% Jesus that, that performed the miracle, but Jesus doesn't perform miracles when he doesn't choose to use you in the middle of it. It might be 99% God and 1% you, but he always gives it back into our hands to fulfill and complete what he is doing in the world. And then I love what it says next. They all ate, someone say all, and they were all satisfied. If, do you think it would have been a miracle if every person there had gotten one bite? Don't you think that would have been... A, how many loaves were there? How many fish were there? How many people were there? 10,000 people. I mean, that, would, that wouldn't have been enough for Rick and Debbie Rains and Christy and I to go out to dinner on. That wouldn't have fed four people, much less 10,000 people. So for everybody to get one bite, that would have been a miracle. But it doesn't say everybody got one bite. It says everybody ate and everybody... All 10,000 were satisfied. You know what that word satisfied means? You know the feeling you have about 5 o'clock on Thanksgiving afternoon after you've eaten your first meal and now you've just had your leftovers and you've eaten turkey and dressing and cranberry sauce again and sweet potato pie and then somebody comes over to you while you're watching the Cowboys on television and they say, would you like another piece of pecan pie? And here's what we say. Woo! No, I, I couldn't eat another bite. Someone say, "Woo!" That's what the word means. It means they all ate and all 10,000 of them went, "Woo!" I couldn't eat another bite. And then it says, Jesus said, go pick up the scraps. Go pick up the leftovers. Now, for there to be leftovers was amazing, but guess how many baskets they picked up? Twelve. And how many apostles were there? Twelve. Do you think that was an accident? 
Do you think it was, do you think it was symbolic for them? Now, I've heard people say different things like, well, the reason that Jesus said pick up the scraps is one, he wasn't a litter bug, or two, Jesus is going green, or, you know, three, you remember Glafrey Gillen? She used to say that God doesn't let anything go to waste. And, and probably all of those things, maybe they're true. But you know what I think was happening when they were all 12? They all had a basket, and they're all going down, and they're picking up all of those extra pieces. You know what I think is going through their mind? I know what we started with. We started out with five loaves and two fish, not enough to feed us, much less 10,000 people, and we kept reaching into the basket, and we kept giving, and just when we thought it was over, 500 people, 700 people, 1,200 people. I kept reaching in, and there was more and more and more. And not only did everybody eat and they were satisfied, but you know what? Jesus doesn't just give what we need. This is an extravagant Jesus. This is the Jesus who gives us way more than we could ever need or even imagine. That's why I think there were 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus doesn't do anything just enough. Jesus does everything with extravagance. And the early church said, we need to keep telling this story over and over again. Now, what does this mean for us? On, on Thanksgiving Sunday, the Sunday where we all feel like we have so many things to be grateful for, when we have, we have so much to thank God for. These past five years, a little over five years now, when I've had a chance to be in this role as a general superintendent, it means I've gotten to see things, I've gotten to go places, I've gotten to see the church in so much diversity. And, and I, think, I think you'll understand when I say not all Nazarene churches look like Bethany first. And, and it doesn't mean they're, they're less. It just means they're really, really different. I pastored three different, three different churches. I pastored one in San Francisco. It was a small church. I pastored one in Kansas City. It was a large church. I pastored here at Bethany first for seven and a half years, and it was one of the great privileges of my life to get to do that and to share life with you for those years. And, but here's what I found out as, as a pastor. It doesn't matter if your church is 150 or if it's 1,000 or if it's 3,000. In every single church, we never had everything we needed to be able to meet the needs in every single community that we were a part of, whether it be the Bay Area, whether it be Kansas City, or whether it be right here in kind of northwest Oklahoma City, no matter how much money you had in the bank, no matter how many people you had, we never had what was needed to meet the needs of the community around us. When we see not only the, the brokenness, we, but, but we see the people who are just crying out for, who are hungry, who are thirsty. And you know, I'm not just talking about physical things right now. But, but as the church, here's what we keep doing. We keep looking out there and we say, Oh God, we can't meet these needs. We can sometimes barely take care of ourselves, much less take care of the needs of communities where there's so much hurt and there's so much emptiness and there's so much brokenness. And so here's what we keep saying. Send them away so their needs can be met. Send, you know, that church has a much better 
whatever. That church does this much better. Or that, you know, that community center does this so much better. And we keep saying to Jesus, out of compassion, not because we don't care, but because we do care, we keep saying, send them away. And Jesus keeps looking back at us and saying, what do you have? What do you have? I'm not asking you what you don't have. It's not like Jesus is surprised and says, ooh, I didn't realize you had so little. But it's like Jesus even understands that we don't have what we need to meet those needs. We, We don't have the resources. We have finite resources. We have limited resources. And part of it is just because it's us. Because we ourselves are, are finite people who serve an infinite God, but, but even still, we don't have what it takes. And instead of being surprised by that, Jesus keeps saying, what do you have? Go and see. What do you have? In fact, I would even suggest to you, if a church ever comes to the place where we start to say, we've got this covered. We... We have everything we need to do the mission of God. We have everything we need in in our strength. At that very moment, you have just said to me, your vision is too small. You don't have a God-sized vision. If, If you keep looking out and saying, we've got it covered, because whenever we've got it covered, it means we don't need Jesus. Whenever we can meet the need, it means we don't need God. And in that moment, we cease to become a gospel church. Because a gospel church recognizes how limited we are, but in dependency we keep going back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we need you. Our vision is too small if we're not in complete dependence on you. And we can still do some good things in communities. We can still do good things and be compassionate and all of that. But, but if we can do it, then we don't need Jesus. And so he says, what do you have? Give it to me. When you read the story, the history of the people of God, we, we don't have an awesome track record, especially when it comes to our stuff and our things. And I don't mean that we're not, we're not compassionate or, or generous people. I, I, I know lots of compassionate and generous people. But I'm talking about just generally, the people of God are always hanging on really tight our stuff and and the reason we hang on tight is we have this mentality of scarcity it's the mentality that says i only have a little bit and if i start giving away a little bit who's going to take care of me who's going to take care of me if i keep giving my stuff how am i going to get back what i need that's a that's a scarcity mentality that's a lack of imagination on the part of god's people because, because God throughout history has provided everything that we need. He's given more than we need. He's the extravagant God. And so we need to live in a, in a liturgy of worship that says Christ is king instead of constantly saying, I've got to hold on until my knuckles are, are white. I'll give you a quick example of that. So the children of Israel, God's people, are 40 years in the wilderness. And 40 years in the wilderness means... We're completely dependent on God. We, we cannot provide what we need. And so he's a pillar of cloud by day and he's a pillar of fire by night. He's constantly present with the people. He feeds them bread from heaven and we call it manna. And manna, is, it just here's what manna means in Hebrew. You think I'm kidding, but this is literally what it means. It means, hmm? It means, what? What is that? That's what manna means. It means, what? 
And every single day they go out and there's what? All over the ground. There's water from rocks. And, and, and God says to them, the one thing about the what? The one thing you cannot forget is that if I give it to you on Tuesday, you can't take Tuesday manna and store it up for Wednesday. You can't take a little bit and put it in a container in a Tupperware box and bring it out and say, I, I'm going to eat a little more today because I'm afraid God won't provide. He said it won't work that way. If you take Tuesday manna and you store it up for Wednesday, what happens to the manna? It goes bad. It, it turns nasty. It starts to rot. And so part of it is, is that the manna is not just a sign of my provision. It's the sign of your trust that I'm going to give you what you need tomorrow and I'm going to give you everything you need and more for today. But you've got to trust me for tomorrow. Tuesday, manna won't work on Wednesday. Are you with me? It's the same concept. What do you have? Give it to me. Put it in my hands. Because here's what's going to happen when you put it into my hands. I'm going to take it. And now it's going to have my blessing. I gave it to you to begin with. Everything I have, I gave to you. There's nothing you have that's good in your life that God didn't provide. You didn't just work hard for it. It's because God is good and God is the provider. And so when he puts it into your hands, you have to be able to say, this didn't ever belong to me in the first place. And so my gifts, my talents, my resources, I'm going to put it back into your hands and I'm going to let Jesus bless it and Jesus multiply it. And then he's going to do something miraculous. He's going to give us the blessed stuff back. And he's going to use us to complete the miracle. Are you with me? All right, last thing. You guys remember, it's been over 10 years ago now that we went to Swaziland. It's hard to believe it's been that long. I can still remember I was in my office upstairs when I made the phone call and I called Larry and I said, Larry, who was the head of Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, Larry, I can't get this burden off of my heart. I know that AIDS has, has wrecked sub-Saharan Africa. It's the greatest pandemic of our generation. And, and I know this is a crazy question, but what can one church do about something that people have put billions of dollars into? What can we do to make a difference? And you remember what he said? It's interesting that you called because I've just returned from Swaziland. And Swaziland has the highest HIV AIDS rate in the world. 42% is what is reported. And that, that's just what the government says, so you know it's probably much higher than that. So maybe 50% of this population either has HIV or is dying of AIDS. And because of that, it's wrecked the economy. Everybody who's not a, a child or an elderly person is dying or on the way to death. And so they... They, they have no economy, they're poor, they're starving to death, they're in drought. I mean, it's just almost a hopeless situation. And I remember the first time that we took a GO team. It was about 20 or 25 of us. And, and, and they said, we're going to show you the worst place. We're going to start with the worst place and go from there. And they took us to a village about four, miles out, or 40, four hours outside of Manzini, and it was called Sitsatsawani. And when we drove into that region, it was, I knew what they were talking about. It, it looked like I was in a science fiction movie because the ground, everywhere I, I looked, the ground was dry and cracked. It was like the surface of Mars. 
There were no crops in the field. There was no livestock. In fact, I remember when the chief came to try to feed our group, he said, we're going to kill our last animal to feed you. It was like one goat. It was just this pathetic moment. He said, "We've, we've been in drought. We have no clean water. Our crops are all dead. Our people are dying. And here's our last goat. Now, we had a person who came with us on that trip from here, and he's an engineer from this church. And and he kept looking over while we were working at the school next to the church in the health clinic, and he said, Pastor, there's a water windmill over there. He said, I want to go take a look at it. And and so he went, and he studied it, and he came back, and, and it was about maybe a couple hours later, and he said, Pastor, I think there's water down there. But the problem is is that every time the electricity goes out, the whole infrastructure collapses and, and this stops working and nobody here knows how to fix it. And, but he said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to think and pray about what I can build to bring back here that will never stop working. Now, let me show you a quick picture. Here's a picture of me. Let's go back one. This is me talking to Pastor Pato, who was... He was the pastor of that little Nazarene village there in the middle of Sitsatsawani. That's when my hair was dark, by the way. <laughs> he was telling me about the needs they had. And, and right before we left, our whole group, next picture, we got together and, and we circled up and we all prayed around that water windmill and we said, God, there's a huge need here. These people have no clean water. They're starving to death. They're dying. Help us. He went home and he came back to me. I remember the day that he came into my office and he threw down a piece of paper on my desk. He said, here it is. There's nothing like this in the whole world. I said, are you serious? He said, it's a prototype. It's a solar paneled water well that doesn't need electricity, but all that has to happen is for the sun to come out. And if the sun comes out, it starts pumping water and it it might run until Jesus comes. I said, how much is going to cost to build it? He said, $25,000. We raised the $25,000. And, and he built the solar panel water well. In fact, it was so unique that Coca-Cola Foundation found out about this prototype. They'd been trying to solve the clean water issue in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa for years. Spent billions of dollars trying to do it. But there was only one they could find that worked. And it was this solar panel water well that was built by somebody from Bethany First Church. They went out and they tried to find out who it belonged to because when we put that solar panel water well in Sitsatsawani, guess what happened? We got water. And it wasn't just a little bit of water. It was a lot of water. It just starts pumping and pumping and pumping. And one year later, we went back. And they said, Pastor, you've got to go to Sitsatsawani and see what's happened. We drove the four hours. And when we drove up into that region, I, I get, I'm getting goosebumps. I couldn't believe what I saw. Because what was like the surface of Mars before as far as the eye could see, there was crops in the field. There, were, there was livestock. There were, there were children running around herding cows. And there was people everywhere. And their stomachs weren't ex- dis- inst- extended anymore. They, they were eating. They were healthy. They were strong. When we pulled up to that compound, there was a thousand people there from, from all of the little villages. And, and when I came up, they were going, la, 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 la. That, that's like, thanks be to God in, in Siswati. That's what that means. They were praising God. I got out. 
the, the Coca-Cola people were there. They came up and they said, are you the pastor? I said, well, I'm one of these pastors. And they said, we, we don't understand you Nazarenes. Whenever we bought this prototype for a million dollars, they said put in water wells all over Swaziland. And every time we put in a water well in a Nazarene place, we said, do you want us to turn in the pipes on us so that all of your water comes to you and you don't waste it on your neighbors? He said, they're all laughing at us. They said, this isn't our water. This is God's water. God's going to provide what we need, and now we're going to share it with the whole community. And they said, as a result, there's thousands of people in all these villages who have clean water for the first time in their lives. And as I'm surrounded by a thousand people, and I can hear, la, 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 I saw it. And it was right over there. And, and there was some right there. And there was a little bit right there, all around me, green grass, real green grass. And then I understood God was breaking in to this place. God was doing something we could not do by ourselves and thousands of people were being fed you want to know how that happened? Because there was one engineer at Bethany First Church who said, God, look at this need. This is a massive need. Somebody's got to do something about this. And God said, what do you have? You do something about it. And guess what? He said, here's my five loaves and my two fish. And he built a $25,000 solar panel water well. Here's a picture of it. That's the Sitsatsawani water well. And when he took what he had and he placed it in the hands of Jesus, thousands of people live today. And you know what's going to happen this year? Pastor Rick and the church board and, and the staff working together, they're prayerfully seeking God's vision for the future a Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, 100 and some years old, your future is better ahead than it's ever been in the past. And, and there's going to be some things that are brought to you, maybe even this year, where it's going to seem like it's way bigger than you could possibly do, individually and corporately. But as you reach out in faith and you just keep hearing Jesus say, what do you have? And as every person brings their loaf and their fish and they give it to Jesus in the hands of Jesus, guess what's going to happen? He's going to bless it. And he's going to multiply it. And he's going to keep giving it back to you to let you be a part of the miracle. And then you're going to look down and it's going to happen over and over and you're going to say, oh, look, there's some green grass. And when you see the green grass, you're going to say, I get to be a part of what God is doing in the world. Let's stand together. And Lord, we think that's the reason why we have to keep telling this story. Because we are forever thinking that it's all about what we can do. But thank you for reminding us, Lord, that when it comes to feeding the masses, 
that we have to keep coming back to Jesus and letting Him take what we have and bless it and break it and then let us complete it. I pray You'd give all of us a greater vision than what we can do. Help us to have the eyes of faith that sees the green grass that's all around us. And we pray for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the, of the church and for the sake of the world. Help us to have eyes of faith. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.